Heavenly Father, I, I stand before this group of men and I think about all that we're going to talk about tonight and I'm trembling a little bit. <clears throat> the ideas that we are going to discuss tonight are the most important ideas in the universe. I honestly believe that. And I openly admit that I don't have the capacity to carry that. So my prayer, Lord, is that you would speak, that you would go around me, through me, beyond me, that you would speak to the depths of our hearts, that you would bring <clears throat> divine revelation of the truth into our hearts, of what your word says about these things. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. Lord, we ask that we would not leave this room the same as we came in. Lord, that we would leave this room changed, that we would leave this room shifted, that we would leave this room not wasting our lives. Amen. Okay, so there are four gigantic biblical ideas in this chapter, four. Uh, we're going to spend most of our time on the middle two, and I'm going to kind of brush past the number one, and number four is kind of an add-on to number two and number three. But there are four huge ideas in this chapter, um, and all of them are extremely important. All of them are ideas that, if you will allow them to, will shift you, will make you a different person, and will make you a better, better person, more like Jesus, because these are things that Jesus really cares about. And when I read this chapter, I was kind of blown away that he would dare put all four of these ideas in one chapter. Each of them deserves about 18 chapters, but there we are. So we are going to dig into these. Idea number one comes right at the beginning. You know, at the end of our, at the end of chapter one, he talks about how God called him into the ministry. Okay, and so he shifts what he's studying away from medicine, which has been what he's been preparing for, and he moves on, he begins to study the word of God. And the first thing that he the thing that he begins to learn is that there are several different camps when it comes to studying the Word of God. There's people who have different ideas about what it looks like to study the Word of God and how studying the Word of God should actually work. And he was actually in a movement or, uh, you know, around at the time there was a movement to start interpreting the Bible in a new way and a new way that is foolish and erroneous, okay? So he got his feet firmly planted by Daniel Fuller on a, this big biblical reality, which is that Bible, the Bible has real meaning, that we can't just interpret it any way that we want, that Scripture says something specific, that what the, the original writer of Scripture meant by what he wrote is what we should be hearing coming through from the scriptures today. Now you guys may say, well, we know that. But the truth is, a lot of the church does not really fully understand this concept. And as men of God, who I hope with all my heart are reading scripture, you've got to get your you've got to understand that this is true and you need to treat the word of God in this way. We need to Understand that what is written there has one meaning, a singular meaning, only one. There aren't, well, you can interpret this however you want. No, you can't. There is the guy that wrote that particular passage under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit meant one thing. And we have to find our way to that one thing that he meant. And we can do that, you know, there's a lot of ways to figure out how to do that, and we can talk about that a little bit if you want. But this issue, one of the things that Mike said just a few minutes ago is part of 
how we find our way to that one meaning that was put in there. And that is we read the context of the scripture. When you just read one scripture, it could say anything. Have you ever you know, heard about the guy that, that, uh, that you know, just said, Lord, speak to me and opened his Bible and said, and Judas went out and hung himself. And then, and then he closed his Bible and said, Lord, speak to me. And he opened it up and said, go ye therefore and do likewise. Right? Okay. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then, that is not how we, that's not how we study scripture. We don't just pick a scripture out of the midst of, of the word and say, well, this just obviously means this. When we have no idea what, it, you know, we, what, what was said before it and what is said after it, the context of every scripture is absolutely important. I have, not, I have no problem with us memorizing singular scriptures. I had no problem with that at all. That's beautiful. We should do that. And it's a, it's a lot easier to do than memorizing whole books of scripture. That's for sure. Although I know people that do that and they are nerds. And that was a joke. They're not, they're not, they're not nerds, but I wish I could do that. I don't, I mean, they, they have, I've talked to guys like that and they say, no, anyone can do this. It's just, you have to get into the practice of doing it. Well, okay. I'm just going to, you know, keep it on my phone and then I don't have to memorize the whole book. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of, I'm being facetious. It's okay. Uh, I'm, I'm just kidding around. Uh, but no, this issue of reading the context of the scripture, no, you have to know what comes before it. You have to know what comes after it. When it's like one of the, one of the letters of Paul. Okay. Who was this letter written to? Why was it written? If you don't know those two things, then there's a whole lot about that letter that you are going to misinterpret. It's just the truth. There's a whole lot about that letter that you're going to get wrong when you read it because you don't understand the cultural significance of what he was writing when he was writing it. And we're not going to find our way down to the eternal nugget that's down there. You know, the other part of this is that we need to understand that this, the Bible was not written in English. Not even Old English. Not even the these, thus, and thous, okay? That, that is not how the Bible was originally written. By the way, God does not still speak that way. I always laugh, and, and I probably shouldn't. This is probably very much a snotty-nosed church kid kind of thing, but I always kind of laugh when people give prophecies and they speak in the these, thous, and thuses. Because God doesn't speak that way necessarily. I mean, if that's okay. I remember being prayed for when I was a kid to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and you know, the, this one particular time, a, a, a guy who was an elder at our church at the time, and he's not around anymore, so I can talk about him. And, and he was praying for me, and he went from being this, like, country bumpkin kind of guy who just had this, he had a kind of high-pitched voice, and he had kind of, you know, and he had this southern drawl that he had, and, you know, and that's how I knew his voice. And when he started praying for me, all of a sudden he became British, and his voice dropped about three octaves. Oh, great and awesome God. That's all of a sudden that came out of, you know, five minutes before that. Hey, Josh, how you doing? You know, that's how he talked. And then all of a sudden, I beseech thee, almighty creator. And I'm like, what in the world is going on right now? Understand that the Bible was written in the language of the people. It was written by mostly uneducated or very small. Now, the Apostle Paul was very educated, but the, most of the rest of the writers of Scripture were not highly educated. Um, they, you know, I mean, look at Peter. He was a fisherman. His education consisted of tying knots and gutting fish, right? Okay, and he wrote how much of the Bible, okay? So uh, we got to understand this was written by normal people for normal people, and it has a very clear meaning. That's what it, that's, it has a very clear meaning. And we're supposed to get a hold of that very clear meaning. This is one of the reasons somebody asked me on Facebook or Twitter, I don't remember, earlier this week, why I like the ESV. Well, one of the reasons I like the ESV is because it's very literally translated. It's translated literally, word for word, with as little paraphrasing as possible. And that's important to me. I want to know what the writer, the actual writer of Scripture, actually was trying to say. Because what they were trying to say is what I should be hearing now. And one of the places that we make a mistake with this is in Old Testament prophecy. We do this all the time. It is one thing to read Old Testament prophecy and say, you know, 
that this has some application for me today, and it does. Old Testament prophecy has application for you today in so far as some of it has not yet been fulfilled. Okay, some of it's yet to be fulfilled in the Messianic era when Jesus comes, Jesus returns to the earth. Okay, um, and also it tells us about who God is and the kind of things God wants and God's excited about. But that prophecy was not written about you. I love you guys. It wasn't written about you. And if you read this, as these are the specific words of God to me. No, they're not. I love you, but they are not. So you read Isaiah, and you see like, you know, some phrase in there, and you say, well, that means that I should go do this. I don't know. You need to be careful about that. You can learn who God is from that. You can learn what God is going to do and what God has done. But the, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah was written about the Jewish people and about their destiny. And we have got, if we don't understand why that book was written and who it was written to, we're going to misinterpret it. And this is that first big biblical idea. We've got to get down to this reality that the Bible says and means something. We don't get to decide what it says and means. The Bible decides what it means. We just get to read it and apply it in our own lives. You know, we're in this, all of this stuff with the, you know, the, 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 all the, the marriage, you know, redefinition acts. Of course, nobody calls them that, but that's what they are. And people, I, I have heard, I heard this morning, I heard a, a reporter talking to a Christian man I loved this, this guy. He was a mechanic, right? And I'm going, oh, man, they're going to talk to a mechanic who's a Christian or he's not going to have – he's going to be an idiot and he's going to be inarticulate and he's going to say stuff from – oh, my gosh, here we go. This guy was so smart. He was on point. He, it was great. I was sitting there going, amen. Woo! I was so excited. This dude knew what he was talking about. This guy knew exactly he, – uh, he had scripture. He was, he was on it, you know? And I was just like, thank you for that. No, this guy really got it. And he was saying, listen, you got to understand. And he was going back to, he was saying, God created marriage and he, he called this union, he gave it a name. That union is called marriage. And it's a union between a man and a woman. And he named that relationship marriage. For us to name any other relationship marriage is a total redefinition of the word. That's why I have a problem. He said, if they want to have if they want to create a name for their relationship and give themselves legal rights, and according to the, you know, in other states they call it legal unions. Okay, he said, I don't have a problem with that. Just don't redefine a word that's existed for thousands of years. It doesn't make any sense. He said, I, I don't. If whatever they want to do, they are free to do. That is, that's the freedoms that we've been given. And I'm, you know, I may not agree with their lifestyle, but I, but I have nothing to say about what they do. That's them. So, but we're going to take this word and make it mean something that it's never meant before. I have a problem with that. And I was going, all right. But see, we do that with the Bible a lot, where we take something that the Bible says very clearly, and we just kind of put a twist on it. Okay, one of the ways, this is one of the things that I, one of my favorites, okay, is I, somebody said to me, a person in leadership, read the scripture I don't remember where it is, but it says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. You guys have heard that? Okay. I love how whenever we quote scripture, it's in King James, even though we don't ever read the King James. But do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Okay. They said to me, that means that we should be careful about who we pray for. That's not what the scripture says. Not even close. What the scripture is, what he is talking about is when the eldership would gather around someone and ordain them for ministry. That's what the laying on of hands means in that context. Unless you know who the letter was written to, what it was written about, and you know that that's what they used to do to make people elders, then you're going to misinterpret that phrase. The Bible is not telling us to be careful who we put our hands on to pray for. That's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying if you're going to ordain someone as a leader, you need to know that person and they, can't, they shouldn't be new in the faith. If you continue to read the next the scripture further on, it becomes very clear that that's what he means and not be careful about who, who, who you put your hands on. But we don't do that. We have these like one, one line verses that we just kind of make up a meaning for them. And that's supposed to be okay. You know, well, it's not okay. 
And John Piper is trying to say, look, the Bible says what it means, and it means what it says, and it is our job to find out what it says, and then set our lives according to what it says. So when we are asking the question, what does it mean to not waste my life? We have to go to Scripture, and whether we like the answer or not, we have to bend our lives to the answer we find in Scripture. We follow. Okay, that's big idea number one. Any questions, discussion? People start whole churches on that. Oh, yes, they do. Whole denominations. Absolutely. Yeah, whole denominations that fight. You know, the whole the big fight between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church when they first split off was over the date of Easter. That's fascinating to me. <laughs> is Easter the second full moon after the whatever, or is it the first full moon after the, that's That's literally what it's about. We were just complaining about that. Just oh. making a sentence on this. Yes, amen. Now, I just heard a thing. Check this out. Totally off subject. But I just heard this thing about a redesign of the calendar. So it would give us 13 months each with 28 days. And it would make it meet every, like, the 10th would always be a Monday. That Like... The, all the dates would always be on the same day, so you would always know. And it was pretty awesome. And they were, to, they were talking about how that would mess with things like Easter, which don't land on an actual day. But they were saying, you know, that we would just have to deal with that. But that, you know, I just thought that was fascinating. I was like, yeah, why didn't we do that? But, you know, whatever. Yeah. You think it in Denver going to do... In every two, two and fifteen. First Timothy. Yeah. Two and fifteen. Seven Timothy. What does it say? I had to. Yeah. When we turn away from what the Bible actually has to say, we are turning away from the Lord. Okay, so if we're searching for an answer for what does it look like to not waste our life, we're going to find it in Scripture. It was a, what, what, is, what is that answer? Now he says, Daniel Fuller says that all of Scripture is pointing to God's desire God's two desires to both glorify himself and to delight mankind. So that is the, the unified testimony of all of Scripture. This is Dr. Daniel Fuller, big-time theologian guy, and he's saying that all of Scripture speaks with one voice that God's two primary desires are to, number one, glorify himself, and number two, to delight mankind. Now, that's pretty great news, if you think about it a little bit. That's pretty awesome. You guys ever heard of the Westminster Catechism? Okay, It's a series of statements of belief okay, that, that all come from Scripture. This is the very opening phrase of the Westminster Catechism says, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Yes, please. I mean, think about that for a minute. The reason I was created is to glorify God and enjoy God forever. That's it. That's the point. That's why I'm here. Okay, John Piper on page 28 says, Enjoying God supremely is one way to glorify Him. Enjoying God makes Him look supremely valuable. Enjoying God supremely is one way to glorify Him. Enjoying God makes Him look supremely valuable. And the best way I've ever heard this illustrated, okay, he didn't include in the book right here, maybe he will later on, is this, okay? I've been married for 15 years. So let's say July 31st, this summer, I... I walk up to the front door of my home, okay, 
and I ring the doorbell of my home. Not something I would normally do. My wife comes to the door, answers the door, and says, What? <laughs> and I pull two dozen long stem roses out from behind my back, right? And I hand them to her, and I get down on one knee, and I say to her, I've got a babysitter for the kids. I want you to go upstairs and put on something beautiful because there's nothing I would love more. There's nothing I would enjoy more than spending this evening with you to celebrate our... Now, what is her response going to be? She slammed the door and called the police or something. Yeah, there's some weird guy in front of my house. <laughs> right? No. But what is her response going to be? She's going to love that, right? She's going to thoroughly enjoy that. She's going to be like, okay, it'd be all excited and whatever. She's gonna... But what did I say to her? There's nothing I would enjoy more than to spend the rest of this night with you. Okay? You know, if you think about it, she should go, you selfish jerk. Who cares what you would enjoy? What about what I would enjoy? But she doesn't do that, right? No. Because enjoying someone that you love is honoring them. Would we ever have a problem with our wife or girlfriend walking in here and grabbing us and kissing us on? No, we wouldn't. You know, you look at her, what, what is this? What is that for? I just really wanted to kiss you. Would we have a problem with this? No, we would not. We would say, all right. <laughs> Why? Because when somebody enjoys you, they're honoring you. They're glorifying you. They're making you look supremely valuable. When I spend money with my, you know, on, on to, to be with my wife, I want to spend time with her. I'm going to enjoy spending time with her. Now imagine the same scenario. I walk up to the door and my wife answers the door and says, what's going on? And I hand her the roses and I say, well, it's our anniversary. So I guess I'm supposed to spend time with you or something. <laughs> Right? I feel like I wouldn't be doing my husbandly duty if I didn't spend time with you tonight. Is she going to be honored? No. Do you think she's going to spend the evening with me? No. Why? What's the difference between the two things? What's the difference between the two? I am inviting her to a night on the town both ways. What's the difference? One is delight, and the other is duty. One is full of joy and enjoyment, and the other is empty and worthless. Do you see how it is my enjoyment of her that makes the difference? It's the same act. But what makes the difference? It's my enjoyment of her. That makes all the difference in the world. So our enjoyment of God works the same way. When we enjoy him, we are glorifying him. On page 31. Well, my wife doesn't want it just once a year either. <laughs> page 31 says this, Unspoken for years, there was in me the feeling that these two were at odds, glorifying God and and following him. Either you glorify God or you pursue happiness. Doesn't that sound right? Doesn't that sound right? Doesn't it, doesn't, isn't that how most of the time we feel about God? Look, I, I'm either going to do what I'm supposed to do and glorify God or I'm going to pursue my own happiness. Right? I mean, don't we think of it that way? Really? I mean, how many guys have run off away from their wives, run out of the church and said, I'm, I've got to be happy? Just a minute. I mean, how many guys have said that? Isn't that what they usually say when they go running off? I, I, need, I just, I wasn't happy. I've got to be happy. I'm pursuing happiness. Talk. Will pursuing God cause happiness? We're going to get there. Oh, sorry. <laughs> 
But that's what he says. He says, unspoken for years, there was in me this feeling that these two were at odds. Either glorify, either I glorify God or I pursue happiness. And he says, compounding the problem was that many who seemed to emphasize the glory of God in their thinking did not seem to enjoy him very much. Ain't that the truth? Many who seemed to glorify God did not seem to enjoy him very much. Amen. Quote it for us. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Here was the greatest mind of early America, Jonathan Edwards, saying that God's purpose for my life was that I have a passion for God's glory and that I have a passion for my joy in his glory, and that these two are one passion. God's purpose for my life was that I have a passion for God's glory and that I have a passion for my joy and that these two are one singular passion. Now, I want to back up just a hair and I want to talk about this issue of God's passion for his own glory. The reason I want to spend some time on this is because this is not something I, I grew up in this church. I am so grateful for the, the upbringing that I was given for the relationship with Jesus Christ that I was given. But this idea never crossed my radar screen until I was 30 years old, 29. That God was absolutely passionate about his own glory more than anything else. I want to warn you, because this is big I, this is big Bible idea number two. We're gonna get back, we're gonna get back to the passion for God's glory and the passion for my joy being the same thing in a minute. But before we go there, I want to go back to this moment, to this idea which is a deeply offensive idea, or it can be. This idea, the first time that I really heard it spoken, offended me and fascinated me. Now wait just a minute. God is more passionate about his own glory than he is about anything else including the salvation of mankind? That is not true. That was my first thought. That is not true. But then I started reading the Bible with fresh eyes. It is true. This is what the Bible says. In fact, it's one of the things the Bible says loudest and most often. That what God does, he does for his own glory first. For instance, God made us for his glory. Isaiah 43, 6 through 7. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, wait for it, whom I created for my glory. Well, it doesn't get much more obvious than that, does it? All of them who I created for my glory. And let me give you a, a little bit of an understanding. I read the context, the before and the after, and it just makes the statement even louder. That God is saying, I created you for my glory. Not just you, but the universe. I created the universe to glorify myself. Am I starting to offend you yet? I hope so. Let's keep going. <laughs> He saved us for his glory. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. Listen to this. For my sake. I do it 
For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. I've quoted Isaiah twice. Let's go to Ezekiel. But I acted for the sake of my name. This is Ezekiel 20 verse 14. I will put these notes on the internet if you want them. That it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. I acted for the sake of my name. He says that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations. And he's talking about when he saved Israel from Egypt. He says, look, I did that to glorify myself. Romans, some of you are going, well, that's just Old Testament. Let's look at New Testament, shall we? Romans chapter 3, 21 through 23. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. That's same thing as glorification. Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. We all know this verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever read the context of that verse? We all know that verse, right? I remember when I was in Christian school, that was the, that was the letter A. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God when we were learning the alphabet. That was letter A. I had not necessarily read this before. He says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law because all have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. He answers our prayers for his glory. That's John 14, 13. I'm not going to read it right now. Our life and all we do is for his glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. To please God, we must be ready to be rewarded by him. That's Hebrews eleven six. That's, again, about his glory. Everything is about his glory. Romans eleven thirty six. This is my life verse. For from him and through him and to him be all things. To God be the glory forever. What does that say? From him and through him and to him be all things. All things are about for. They are from and for and unto his glory. That is the point. God is the end all be all. He's the beginning. He's the middle. He's the end. He is the point. He is the reason. He is the highest glory. The only thing that is worth anything is God, his glory, his person, who he is. You were saved for the glory of God. I remember I read a, a I listened to one of John Piper's sermons about this in particular, and he started talking about how the cross of Christ was about the glory of God. Deeply offensive to a person who has, been, who has heard my entire life that the only reason Jesus died was to forgive my sins. Right? Now, don't worry. That is why Jesus died. But we're going to get there, okay? First, I want you to understand that his, what was first on Jesus' agenda was glorifying his Father. And that every step on the road to Calvary was echoing in the universe that the glory of God is of infinite worth. You've got to understand the cross is more about the Father than it is about me and you. When we begin to get this, that the worth of God is the point that the worth of God is why the universe exists, that the, youth of, the worth of God is why you exist, that the worth of God is why everything happens, all of a sudden, all of our questions about hell all of a sudden make sense. You want to know why? Because what is sin? Okay, but that's a manifestation of sin. That's not actually sin. Sin is a devaluation of the worth of God. That's what sin is. Now we might do that a ton of different ways. And one of them is rebellion. But sin is devaluation of the glory of God. Jesus said it himself. What is the first and greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Now let me ask you a question. Is that not a commandment for God as well? That's God's first and greatest commandment. 
the first and greatest thing that God has to do with his own heart is love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is hard. I want you to be honest right now. Is anybody at all offended yet? I mean, really. I, I will admit that this offends me sometimes. Don't worry, we're going to save it. But let's, let's be honest. Because the truth is, gentlemen, if I haven't offended you yet, it's because you don't understand what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, really. Yeah. I think maybe... 10, 12, 10, 15 years ago, maybe I would have been offended by that. Coming as far as I have, going through, going through what I have, it, it's just really making sense to me. Yeah. Getting to know God, you know, just by being in relationship with God, understanding His character is, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. This, this reality, yeah. I didn't know if offense is really the right word. I more feel more unworthy as we go through this and talk about it. Hmm. Um, offend just it offends me. Okay. And, and I mean, it does. Now I'm getting, and like I said, I've been walking in this for my, like almost 10 years. Okay. <laughs> it, it's been that long since the, the, you know, I was 26 to 27 years old when I first read this and really got smacked in the head with this reality. And it was, it was deeply offensive. It turned my whole world upside down. My understanding of God completely shifted out of this truth. That I had never run into in the church. Now I, found, I thought about it later, and yet people had said it to me. But then everything else we say becomes about the worth of man and not the worth of God. When we talk about why we want to see people get saved, it's way more about I don't want them to go to hell than it is about I want their life to glorify God. That statement right there, that statement right there is that I, I, I'm telling you, we think more about the worth of man than we do about the glory of God. And that's a mistake. It's a mistake. I think sometimes we, we talk in the church about, we use a lot of words in, in the church sometimes that we really don't ever define. Mm. Like, I mean, I know because I've looked at it, what the word glory means. It basically means weightiness or heaviness. But like what, I mean, when we say, all right, well, we want the glory of God. What does that look like? What is it, how do you, how is it manifest? How is it materialized in our midst? Like if we're, if our goal is to glorify God and to manifest his glory or to make his glory like greater, what does that look like? How do I make that happen in my daily life? You see what I'm saying? Like how does that, how does that function? Yeah. And we're going to get there. I think a lot, and this, this part of the book where we talk about what Jonathan, um, Jonathan Edwards, yeah. It really messed with me because it was, you there thinking that God, I think the concept that God wants us to be happy, as someone who comes out of a religious background, saying that you have to do certain things for God to maybe possibly think that you're okay, yeah. let alone actually delight in you, yeah. it, offends, it offends our flesh because I think religion and even our own flesh revels in the fact that we should beat ourselves up and get to God. And I have some ideas about that. He talks about that, right? He says you got to be careful with that because uh, then it enters legalism. Right. And it does. I don't remember what part of it I was listening to. <laughs> I don't remember what he said. Yeah, Todd. Did you say that God wants us to become a reflection of who he is? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But again, we're kind of straying past this point, and I really want to drive it home. This reality that the primary reason God does anything is... His own worth. Worth is a better word for me than glory. At least when it, may, it makes more sense to me. Worth is, a, worth is a word that I can get my hands around. Glory has a little bit of mystery to it. But worth really makes sense to me. And the worth of God, when we begin to say that God values himself more than he values us, that's an offensive statement. It, it is to me. It shouldn't be, but it, it is to me. Yeah, Mike. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead first. Well, I look at it part of the offense is when we think about any of us, 
and, and we think, wow, there's pride, there's ego, and yeah. all this, and it's all about me. Yeah. I, I want all of you to think highly of me. I want you guys to bow to my ideas and my thoughts, and I'm important, and all that kind of stuff. And so then we want to transfer that same mindset to how we're looking at God. And here's this God up here. It's, it's all about Him. Yeah. Okay, so we're taking this humanist concept that we have and trying to transport it to this glorious Right. You know, it's God that it just doesn't transfer. We don't like people that are all about them. Yeah. I mean, do you like being around people that make everything about themselves? No, you don't. You don't like talking to them. You don't like hanging out with them. And the truth is, if you don't know anybody that's like that, it's probably because you're like that. I, don't, I love you, but it's probably true. <laughs> well, that's what I'm talking about. Exactly. You know, somebody that turns every conversation around to be about them, and all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, I was talking about me. You know, and all of a sudden now we're talking about what? I don't know. You know, and the person that's constant, that they are the they are the center of the entire universe and they're totally full of themselves and they just think they're the best things that sliced bread. And you don't like people like that. What? No, they're not. But who is? Exactly. It is. It makes sense for God is the only person in the universe who can tell people you need to love me. And have that be the most loving thing they can ever say. I mean, think about that. He is a person. He's not a human. Well, it isn't that. I, isn't that I, this is still a point of contention for me? Really, I mean, I, I, but, but every once in a while, and and, and I want you to, if you think about this for long enough. It'll, it will make you mad. It will. There's still, there's still enough. Maybe I'm just the most sinful person in the room. But when I start thinking about, I'm going to make a statement, maybe the most offensive statement, th- statement that I will make all night, but it is the truth. Okay? The glory of God is worth the billions who will go to hell. Think about that for a minute. How does that fit in with It's exactly. It's, yeah. <laughs> but you're not saying that God's worth is determined by the number of people that go to hell. No, sir. No. So you're saying that I'm saying that people, that God, God damning people to eternal conscious torture that his his worth, he's worth that. Even if all of mankind was sent there, he's worth that. That's what I'm saying. That's the that's the clear teaching of scripture. Tim. I think that's why Paul said it the preaching of the gospel is offensive to yeah. the unbelievers. Yeah. If it's all about God, yeah. I can't do anything. Right. This is not, we talk about, it doesn't enable us to say yes to him. You know the argument. I do. Yeah. I I think for me, that, because I'm I'm actually with you on it being very offensive. Uh, Because for me, it, it, on a very basic level, it it changes the, it changes all my terminology, changes the, you know, the, the, the little phrase that we use, you know, Christianity is about me and Jesus. It's, it's, it's not about me and Jesus. It's just about Jesus. It's just about Jesus. And, and, and that, that alone is completely changes my outlook on everything. It did me. Doesn't that have a lot to do with your background? Like my dad, never in his life ever said I love you. I don't think he ever put it down the only way I could communicate with him is I had to go to him and do what he wanted to do. We went fishing, even in my rebellion, was to get his attention. And so when you say that, it's what I've lived. Yeah, but God is not like your father. No. Like, and that's, yeah. and we're going to get there. But to get to get there, we have to stop here first. 
Go ahead. Go ahead. The thing that just always, I was watching it today, so maybe it's just because I was watching it. Uh, Lou Giglio's How Great Is Our God, right? Um, billions of stars, an entire universe for one purpose. Mm -hmm. There's no other life. It's just for his glory. Yep. Yeah, and so thinking about like all of this, I don't know, I guess that's why it's not offensive to me. I mean, if that's the case, then... Right. Well, you're getting, you're, you're beginning to understand that. This, this, this reality, yes, he's worth, he is worth it. He's really worth it. So you're also saying that God's value is much more than him killing the sick. Yes. Like, restore someone from being blind. Yes. The whole purpose we were created was so that of our own free will, we would worship and praise him. Yeah. Instead of having automatons that had to. Right. So, and, and it's our choice to discover that truth and give that love and glory and praise to him. Right. That's the only reason. But when the world, the world stands up and says, what kind of God is this that knows the decision that you're going to make before you ever make it? You believe he knows it, right? And creates a fiery hell to send you to for the decision he already knew you were going to make. And the world doesn't understand the worth of God. The worth of God is the only reason for hell. There's no other reason big enough. When you hear the concept that, well, why would a loving God, you know, people use that as an argument all the time on why they're not serving God. They say, well, why would a loving God send someone to hell. Right. And I firmly believe, you know, I obviously can't look in the future and know, but I firmly believe that, you know, those who go to hell by their own rebellion against God. Yes, they do. There's not going to be any, there's not going to be any question about why they're there. Like, well, how did I end up here? Why am I here? I think they'll know. They will know. That they'll see God's glory. And just like Isaiah, who was living right and prophesying for six chapters before that, They'll see God and say, well, I'm not worthy. Right. They'll know exactly why. It won't be right. an argument of, oh, man, how did I end up here? Right. They'll know exactly why. Yes, they will. They will. They will know. They. It is a choice that they make. That's the truth. They made the decision not to accept what he offered them. And so they're going. So is it God's fault? No. In a way. But also, in a way, it kind of is. Did he know they would make that choice? Yes, he did. He's not making it for them. He knows they made it themselves. He's not temporal. I mean, so it's, it, he can make the confusing. And this is kind of a deep belief, but, you know, we look at time in a linear fashion because that's the only way we can understand it. He's outside of that. So, yes, he knows, but... It's like he knows right now because it's already been preordained. They still have free will. He only knows because he's outside time. So he can see all the decisions that whatever presented me throughout my life, I will choose whatever I choose to choose. And he can see that at the end because he's not following that linear progression. Right. He can see the end and the beginning at the same time. Right. Right. But he still created us. Yeah, but I say it's not, it's not, there's nobody that's ordained to go to hell. I mean, that's. Well, it depends what you mean by ordained. But God knows before anyone's ever born what decision they're going to make at some point in their life. Sure. Isn't that called foreknowledge? That is called foreknowledge. The Bible talks about the elected. I don't go quite that far. I'm about a, I'm about a 3.5 point Calvinist. There's, I don't, I don't, not all of the tulip is me. I'm not quite there, but, but a few of those points I think are pretty good ones. Total depravity, you better believe it. A couple of those other ones I'm not quite sure. I think it's not understood. Look what they see, what my casing saw on That's a great image that Isaiah gives us. It's what we'll finally see is that we'll see John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he provided a way. He did. I listened to a message about a man who was teaching and ministering, and he decided that he was, God had called him to go to Africa and minister. And he thought, well, he's going to go to Africa and, and 
show these porkies and you know and to teach them about God. And when I got there, I realized that they had far more knowledge and revelation about who God was than I ever imagined, and they blatantly disregarded it and blatantly rebelled against him. And they said he was mad at God for sending me there. Like, why would you send me here to to preach to these people who have way more understanding about you than I ever would have acknowledged? And he said, and then he realized, and God spoke to him and said, I didn't send you here for you. Yeah. I sent you here because I love them. Yeah. Period. All right, so now let's let's move a little bit beyond this point because we're almost out of time already, believe it or not. Okay, I, I, I want to, God loving himself more than he loves anything else, isn't that selfish and mean? Right, okay? Uh, it's not, okay, because number one, God gives us the greatest gift by giving us himself. What did he give us? Himself. The thing he loves the most, himself, he gave, he's giving that to us. Love does not equal making much of someone. Okay, this is a big point that John makes in the book where love is not about me exalting you. Love is about me giving you what is best for you. Me caring about your full well-being. Me caring about you having the best for you and wanting your best. Yes, your actual best interests. Not necessarily what you think is your best interest. And all the parents in the room say, amen. Okay? Because we all understand that, yes, you would like to eat candy all the time and nonstop and never eat anything good. But that isn't going to be good for you. And you're going to really regret it in the end. And so I'm going to love you enough not to let you do that right now. Okay? I'm going to love you enough to spank you when you're trying to do something that's going to hurt you way worse than this little spanking. Okay, we get that. Parents get that. They, they understand it. The Lord understands it as well. Loving someone is doing what is best for them and helping them to enjoy the most enjoyable thing in the universe, which is the glory of God, which they were created to enjoy. Helping them to enjoy him is the most loving thing that God can do. Commanding us to enjoy him is the most loving thing that God can do. Okay, page 33, to make them feel good about themselves when they were created to feel good about seeing God is like taking someone to the Alps and locking them in a room full of mirrors. When we make Christianity about the worth of man and not about the worth of God, we are stealing the most precious thing that Jesus wants to give us, himself. We were created to enjoy him forever. And our desire, these twin desires that look in, that according to the culture are so fighting against each other. These twin desires that are, that, that, that are, that according to, to the culture are, are just warring against one another. I want to glorify God. That's the goody two shoes thing over here. I want to live a life of happiness. That's the, I'm going to go off and drink and smoke and sleep with everything that moves. Right? Isn't that what our culture says? Oh, you want to glorify God? Well, then you can't have any fun and you can't enjoy life. That's not, you're not going to enjoy life. Sorry. You know, people call the better things in life and they're talking about sex and drugs and rock and roll. That's stupid. The Lord says, no, your desire to glorify me, your desire to see me glorified will only be met when I am your greatest pleasure, your greatest joy and then in that moment, as you live a life that is glorifying unto me, you will receive your greatest joy. You follow this logic, okay? So that was big, big idea number two was that God exalts, uh, that the most important thing to God is his own glory. Big Bible idea number three is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, okay? And then my favorite verse to talk about this from, my all-time favorite verse to talk about this from is Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. I'm going to read it to you. In fact, I'm going to start in verse 12 because, well, no, we'll start in 11. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate. 
declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. Now, if, if you heard me saying, heaven and earth bear witness, this horrible atrocity that's taking place, these two horrible atrocities that are taking place, oh, let the earth bear witness. What are you probably going to think like? I'm like, you know, a child has been murdered or something horrible like that. Okay, right? Because heaven and earth bear witness is the worst thing that could possibly happen. And here's what God says. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Okay, now let's back up, Lord. Heaven and earth bear witness. Be appalled. Be shocked. Let all of the earth be, be shocked, appalled. Let them cover their faces like, <gasps> they walked away from me, the fountain of living water, and they dug a hole in the ground. Those are the two evils I'm supposed to be shocked by? I'm supposed to be appalled at this? Yes. Because this is what they've done. They have refused to enjoy the only thing that will satisfy them both now and forever. And they have chosen to live a life working every day for things that will never satisfy them. That is the greatest sin on the face of the earth, is to refuse to enjoy the most enjoyable, most satisfying reality in all the universe, and to seek to enjoy something that might give you a moment's pleasure, but will destroy you for the rest of your life. That, right there, is the worst sin of all. Because it's, you are sinning, again, it's, you are breaking that first and greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. You know, that's the most loving commandment that Jesus could give us and the most enjoyable one. The human soul was created for pleasure in God. We are supposed to want pleasure. We're supposed to want joy. That's why we were created wanting it. That's not your sin talking. That's your God DNA is speaking to you saying, seek pleasure, seek joy. That's what I want you to do. But don't seek it in these foolish things that are just going to destroy you. Seek it in the one place that's going to give you life and pleasure and joy for the rest of eternity. Seek it in me. We were created for joy, gentlemen. And a life not wasted is a life that is lived in pursuit of enjoying the glory of God and helping everyone we meet to enjoy the glory of God. Our question's already answered right here in this one statement. A life not wasted is a life lived for joy in the glory of God, in the worth of God, in who God is, what God does, what God wants, and how God acts. We just throw away the words, the glory of, and just say, in God. Yeah. We have to go from a secular, humanistic worldview to a Christ worldview. Well, exactly. But secular humanists are idiots. Look at all the things that they chase. They want to drink alcohol, which, you know, in a moment will provide some pleasure. Absolutely. But what, how do you feel the next day? Okay. Feel pretty bad. And if you do that for long enough, how are you going to feel the rest of your life? Which isn't going to be very long because you're going to get cirrhosis of the liver and you're going to die. Okay. They pursue sexual encounters of all kinds and descriptions. Well, guess what? You're going to get a disease and it's going to kill you. You're never going to be able to have sex again. Have fun with that. Not only that, you're going to break the heart of the people you love the most. You're going to ruin your life and their lives. This sounds like so much fun. Doesn't it? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take drugs. Which guess what's going to happen? Not only is my body going to waste away to nothing. And I'm going to be caught in an addictive cycle where drugs no longer become pleasurable. They just become necessary to function. Okay, but then I'm going to die soon. And I'm going to, you know, get caught by the cops and get thrown in prison for this. This is, I, you're right. I should seek, I should live the world's lifestyle. You know what? Let's run after money. Let's ruin my marriage and my family and my children and my whole life by working 24-7. 
And then maybe I make it and maybe I don't. And if I don't, at the end of the day, I'm going to be so and so I'm going to have so enjoyed my money that I am then going to probably, you know, kill myself or something other stupid than that. Waste it on some kind of, this year. You know, the world really has things figured out. Or we can live the life we were created to live, which is a life lived in pursuit of knowing God more, being more like him every day, watching as his life is released in us so that not only do we prosper and are blessed and are lifted up out of our own sin and foolishness, but every life we touch gets changed and every life we touch gets moved. So we're filled with joy. The people around us are filled with joy. Our wives and our children are filled with joy. God's pouring out his blessing on us. That's that's boring. I would never want to do that. Yeah. I'm reminded of my my favorite Rabbi Zacharias quote. It's Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. Amen. Jesus talks about because he came to give us life and life. More abundant. More abundant. He said, this is eternal life. And when he said that, you read that, that when, when he says, this is eternal life, that you know uh, me and you know the one that sent me. When he said that, that word eternal there, he's not just talking about eternally long. He's also talking about eternally good. Increasing in pleasure forever. So I am not ashamed to stand before you and say, I spend my life in pursuit of pleasure. Because I do. I do. You know why I do? Because Jesus told me to. He looked at me and said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Is there anything more enjoyable than those two realities? No. There isn't. So I spend my life in pursuit of true pleasure and I spend my life in pursuit of happiness. Not happy, not necessarily happy in the next five minutes, but in 5,000 years from now, I'm going to be much happier than people that made other decisions. Five billion years from now, I'm going to be much happier than people that made other decisions. This is a life not wasted. A life in pursuit of the one thing that has infinite worth, and that is God himself. Are there any questions? Nothing? Nobody? The last big Bible idea, and like I said, this is just kind of a tack on the others, and we're really going to explore it next week, is that spending a life in pursuit of God means spending a life in pursuit of Jesus Christ. I love the way John Piper says it. He said, if we would embrace the glory of God, we must embrace the gospel of Christ. The reason for this is not only because we are sinners in need of a Savior to die for us, but also because this Savior himself is the fullest and most beautiful manifestation of the glory of God. He purchases our undeserved and everlasting pleasure, and he becomes for us our all-deserving, everlasting treasure. Amen. Anybody? Come on, talk to me. What's going on? Is this blowing anybody's head off? I hope it is. I really do. These are weighty, huge realities. And they deserve to have lives spent thinking about them. It's how big they are and how important they are. Yeah. So we're going to discuss um, principles that we can practice and things that we can do that will uh, awaken the 
live a life that will glorify and honor God. Yep, that's really the rest of the book. Yep. You have to have this idea in your head before you can... We have to have the theology before the application. So that's what tonight was about. Giving you the understanding, and then the next few weeks are all about the what. This is the why. Now we can be about the what, and it'll make a lot of sense. The practical, what does it look like when you wake up on Monday morning? That's coming in the next few chapters, so stick around. Amen. Yes, that is how it goes. Lord, I am amazed by you. I love this. Just one little note that I forgot to mention earlier, but this picture of, you know when we sing songs like, Lord, I magnify your name? Did you catch this in the, in the reading? Oh, I magnify your name, I magnify your name. I always used to not really understand what that meant. And he says, it's magnify like a telescope, not like a microscope. A telescope makes a really big thing look a little bit more like it actually looks. A microscope makes a really little thing look really big. When we magnify God, we aren't making him look bigger than he is. We're just helping us who are way out here get a little better view of what he really looks like. And that's what our life is all about. All right. We have the chapters back here. Chapter 3. 